Amen. Would you take your Bibles? Let's start off with Matthew 13 today. I think I've got John 4 there, but we're going to get there eventually. But I want you to look at Matthew 13 with me, first of all. Now, the point that I want you to take with you today is that this idea of the gospel, it's helpful to me. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. Think of the gospel as a powerful medicine, a cure-all, if you will, and that you have been entrusted with it. You didn't design it. You didn't create it. You have no power to change it, to modify it, to enhance it. It's a full package. It's been delivered to you. And so, in a sense, you are the dispensing physician. You're the one, in a sense, the one who writes the prescription. But the prescription is always the same. It's Christ. Um, and so see yourself as a medical professional, a doctor, nurse, whatever you like. And this is the cure-all, the gospel we've been entrusted with. And that the lost around us, they're the patients. And they are all terminally ill. And they may have various symptoms. Some of them may be further along in their progress towards death than others. But they are all terminal, just like you and I were terminal as well at some point. So... You're the dispensing physician. Your patient is terminally ill. Um, The trick that we have to work with now is this. You can prescribe the medication. You know what the cure is. You know what's going to happen if he doesn't take it. How to get them to take their medication. Isn't that what evangelism is all about? I can give it out. I can give it. I can throw it out. We can give it out in mass crowds of 10,000 to preach the gospel. How do you get each one to take that medication into his life, to, 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 take the, to actually take the pill and swallow it and be cured? How do we get them to that point? And uh, um, I'm not so sure that's totally up to us. But I think there are some ways that we can present this all-curing medication so that they will want to be cured. Um, sometimes people will go to a doctor not knowing they're sick. Maybe that happened to you. Maybe that's happened sometimes. Um, I read about that in a, a blog from a Christian pastor down in Plymouth who, uh, whose daughter um, had, uh, she and her husband had been trying to have a baby, and they couldn't, and so she just they went to see the doctor, thought maybe some endometriosis, whatever going on. They found out she had cancer, and... Um, she had not gone for any cancer. They had gone to see why they were not able to conceive. And according to the blog, you know, the Mayo Clinic and, and wonderful things and surgery, and it was a slow-growing uh, type of cancer uh, that uh, they believe they got it all. Um, but they've had to remove her fallopian tubes and all that. So they'll have to look into other forms of having children, having uh, maybe adoption or, or other uh, you know, in vitro type of things to see what happens. But um, anyway, she didn't know she was sick. She had no idea that there was anything terminal in her life, but had they not caught it at that time, and he was praising God about that, that she went to the doctor to be tested for one thing and found something different. And that's how a lot of people are, I think, with the gospel. They know they got some problems. Maybe there's depression. Maybe someone said that they're bipolar. Uh, maybe there's some anger issues. Maybe there's some problems in the home, relationship issues. And so these might cause this person maybe to ask you, uh, who maybe has a strong marriage, good parenting skills, maybe success at work, maybe you're just known as a cheerful person. They might come to you and, and say, well, I need, can I talk to you? And so they're presenting with a problem that is really just a symptom, really. But you know what they really need. 
what do they need? Let's look at a couple of, listen to these references. Um, but first, let's look at Matthew 13 first. On the same day, Jesus, verse 1, went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. That was um, first century acoustics right there, standing on the water and preaching from the water there. And it also helped keep him away from all the crowds, knocking him in the water. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, here's the first one, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Okay, this, the seed is going to be the gospel. The sower went out to sow. Some seed fell by the wayside. By the way, I think of you as the sower. We're the sowers. Christ is a sower th- through us, of course, but we're the ones dispensing this medication. In this case, the uh, analogy is of, uh, agricultural. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. All right, so this, the gospel came into a stony, a hardened heart, the well-packed soul of the path, and uh, uh, the Jesus interprets it later on, making a, a long story short. The birds came. Satan snatches that gospel before they can really respond to it. So they're not saved. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. Um, some would say... There's some iffiness there. We're not sure were they saved or were they not saved. Not really sure there, but something happened. Uh, I tend to think this is probably a person we could say probably was saved, but hard to know. Only the Lord knows. It's not our job to discern who's saved and who's not saved. Verse 6, um, verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Someone that may have maybe made a profession, but maybe he just made a verbal thing, but in, instead the cares of the world, they really were the things he cared about. I would tend to think this person is probably not saved. Verse 8, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He whose ears to hear, let him hear. That last one, obviously, truly saved. So we had a person who's clearly not saved, a couple people that in this response, probably not saved, probably saved, uh, but certainly had some issues, and then finally ones who responded with the gospel to varying degrees. And so the point of this parable is not to say, categories people, well, you must be the hard soil, you must be the stony soil, you must be the thorny, uh, you must be the good soil. Not to do that as much as to say to us, the dispensers of the medication, expect many different responses from people. Some will say, yes, that's what I've been waiting for all my life. And they'll take it, and they'll get saved, and they'll produce fruit, and wow, they'll sign up to go to the Congo, and they'll be (laughs) serving God the rest of their lives. And others will say, well, my friends go, and maybe I'll do too, might as well. And they'll make a profession, but nothing really happened down here. Uh, others will say, Islam, they don't want your face. No, I don't want any of that. Don't give me that Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. So we're to know that though we've got the cure-all, and it's not from us, it's from the Heavenly Father. It's not my cure-all, it's his cure-all. We're just dispensers of it, that there will be a, a variety of responses from people. How does the Bible describe unbelievers? Ephesians 2, 1 says, In you he has quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. They're dead. Unbelievers are spiritually dead, uh, just like we were before we came to know Christ. A corpse. Corpse can't respond to anything. You can probe it, prod it, drop it in the ground six feet down. It doesn't bother him. It's dead, unresponsive. A corpse cannot please God either. Corpse can't respond to anything. And so it's an appropriate way to describe the lost. They're like a corpse. In Isaiah 42, we learn that they're deaf and blind. Here, you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. Deaf and blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually blind. That occurs throughout the Old and New Testaments, by the way. The lost are deaf and blind. There's some pretty serious illnesses here. Uh, of course, in Luke 15, we learn that the lost are lost. 
They are off track. They are wandering. They cannot find their way home. Uh, In the parable of the prodigal son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. And so lost, lost in the darkness, wandering. This is how the unbelievers are all around us. In 2 Corinthians, we learn that the unbelievers are actually wicked, wicked. First, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not uh, be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what, uh, what communion do we have with righteousness, with unrighteousness? So without Christ, there is only wickedness, evil, iniquity. And that's why the, pro- the, the proverb can say even the plowing of the wicked is evil. Not that the plowing is an evil, but anything that's done apart from faith in Christ doesn't please God. And whatever doesn't please God is sin, and sin is evil. And so you, know, you arrive at this conclusion that though there may be lost people that do really good things, there may be one day uh, a lost person who discovers a cure for some disease. And that's a great thing. We appreciate that. And it's appropriate that we celebrate those achievements. But in the, in the eternal plan... The lost are unable to please God, and therefore all that they do in eternity's focus is wasted. It's not for eternity, and therefore is wicked. We know that the lost are disobedient. Colossians 3, 6 says, uh, For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. That's a term that's used also in Ephesians. The children of disobedience. Uh, that is the idea of their father is disobedience. And they're the sons and daughters of disobedience, so you tend to do what your father does. They're sons and daughters of disobedience. That's all we do. That's all we can do. An unbeliever can't please God. All they can do is disobey God. All they can do is do the wrong thing. It's not till we're believers we actually have a choice. We actually can choose now to obey or disobey. Only believers have that option. Unbelievers can only disobey God. And, of course, the Proverbs is full of references to the lost being foolish without God's wisdom. In Ephesians, we learn that they are without hope and without God. Chapter 2 and verse 12. No hope, no God, no Christ. They are hopeless and godless and Christless in their sojourn here on earth. In Romans 1.18, we know that the lost are under God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a strong Strongly worded statement against the unbelievers uh, of all ages uh, that they are under God's wrath for suppressing the truth. In John 3.18, Jesus told us that we are already condemned. We're already condemned. The lost didn't have to do anything to become condemned. We are born condemned. We are born in sin. David said, in sin I was conceived sinful nature was a part of our very beginning, a part of our existence. So we're already condemned. People sometimes think, well, I, I'm okay till I do something really bad. But it's actually the opposite. Jesus said, you're condemned already. What you need is to be redeemed. What you need is life. In 2 Thessalonians 2.12, the lost are headed for damnation, that they might all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2.12. Damnation, eternal Hell is the lot of those who have not believed and die in that state. And Revelation 21.8 makes it even clear that they are bound for the lake of fire. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. All right, so this is your patient. 
There's not a lot of hope there, is there? I mean, that's a pretty big chart against your patient, the person that you're trying to help. Nothing you can do can fix any of that. Nothing. You can't make a dead corpse come to life. You can't do anything to help that person to please God. You can't. No matter what kind of therapy, what kind of exercise, what kind of thinking changes, nothing you can offer that's man-made can change his or her terminal condition. And it is terminal. There is no hope apart from one prescription, and that's the gospel. Only the gospel can change. Only the gospel can take that dead corpse and give it life that it can now respond to God and respond to other people in a way that God plans for him to respond. Now let's go to John chapter 4. Classic example of how Christ models for us evangelism. Now in thinking this passage through, I want to suggest there's four things Christ does here that we should include when we talk to people about the gospel. Um, he establishes common ground. Yes, no matter where a person's from, there's something you have in common. You might have to work at it, work at it really hard. But there's always something you have in common, even if it's just that we're part of the human race. There's something you have in common. Um, Christ talks about that, common ground. He also addresses the confusion of religions, the confusion of religions that came up in their conversation. And Christ comments on that confusion is prevalent in our world today. And then he comments on the certainty of her sin, or we would say her sickness. He brings up a a topic that reveals instantly her sinful life, her inability to please God. And then finally he confesses, or um, I I just wrote down to keep him all seized, confesses his messiahship. He confesses to her that the Messiah has come. In our case, we would would mention that as the coming of the Messiah. He's, He's come. The cure has already come. Those four elements, the common ground, confusion on religions, certainty over sin, and the confession of the, his messiahship are, I think, four elements we ought to have. Maybe there's more, but at least those four ought to be a part when we, uh, of how we talk to other people about the gospel. So we've already talked about, number one, understanding the patient. Terminally ill, corpse, dead, lost, hopeless, godless, Christless, bound for eternal hell. That's the situation. Is that a serious condition? Absolutely especially in light of the fact that we don't know what a day may bring forth, James tells us. We don't know how long our patient may live. Now, in, phys- in the physical medical world, a person might say, well, this person's got six months, maybe, maybe a year. We have no estimate of how long that person may be alive because of tragedies and accidents and things like that. So it's urgent. It's urgent. You know, when I think about the last words Jesus told us before we went back to heaven, we have, of course, the Great Commission to go out and make disciples. I mean, that's all he said. Make disciples, teach them, baptize them. I'm going to be with you. Go wherever you go. As you go, make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, and I'm going to be with you till the end. And you think about what we really spend our lives doing compared to that. I mean, he didn't mention anything else. He didn't talk about... And make sure you get a really good hobby so you'll be happy. <laughs> or make sure you really get the, the home of your dreams. Or, or make sure you'll, you know, live in a place that really brings you joy and happiness. Or, or whatever, the things that we really tend to focus on 
I just wonder if we broke our whole life up in a typical seven-day week, how much of it is devoted to the very thing Christ said to do before he left and how much other stuff supplanted. I'm guilty of this too. How much other stuff that we get involved in supplants that? And how much, you know, let's just say, let's just say we might do 10% of our life evangelizing other people. Well, that'd be probably a lot. But if we just did 10%, you know, one day out of 10, we told someone about the gospel. And we didn't do anything like that the other, uh, the other nine days. I would say we were ahead of the game if we did that, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'd say that's pretty good. So, you know, I wonder what Christ thinks about that. How much time we're spending doing other stuff when what matters to Jesus is the gospel. And so this idea of go with the gospel that uh, we have for our theme is, is wonderful, and I think it's much needed because we don't need political reform right now. We don't need economic reform, not in the, and not in the long term of eternity. Our greatest fear should not be of a terrorist attack as believers. Our greatest fear should be, have I done what my master commanded me to do, knowing that he's coming back and there will be a reckoning? That he will call his servants and he'll see, I gave you these many talents, and I look at those talents, it's like the gospel. I entrusted you with this. What'd you do with it? I don't care what other else you did. I want to know what you did with this. I don't care about the kind of car you had. I don't care about the kind of house you had. I don't care about your great vacations. I want to know what you did with this. That's all I care about. What did you do with the gospel? Now, if that's how it's going to go, and I think we've got some scriptures that show us that is how it's going to go on Judgment Day, being a seat of Christ. What are we going to do about that? First of all, let's determine in our hearts we're going to understand how people are. Secondly, gaining trust. Because that whole point of the person saying, okay, I'll take this medication you're offering me, I think there has to be an element of trust. And I think Christ did that by establishing some common ground. In, Rome, in John chapter 4, Jesus came to Samaria, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Now, as you study the background, probably this was not a woman of good reputation because generally the good women, women of good reputation, married women, decent women would have come to draw water in the evening. And she seemed to be coming in the middle of the day, uh, which may imply she did not want to be around those other women or she wasn't allowed to. But we know from her lifestyle revealed later that she was not a woman with a good reputation. And so Jesus asked her to give him a drink. Very unusual for a Jew to ask a Samaritan woman. As we learned in Sunday school, they don't have any dealings because of what happened during the Babylonian captivity. These Jews intermarried with the pagans, and so they were of mixed blood, and they weren't considered pure Jews, and they considered unfaithful. So Jesus, a pure Jew, a pure stock, obvious by his clothing, no doubt, his apparel, approaches her and asks her for water. Common ground. She's coming to get water. She's going to have it shortly. May I have a drink? I don't see this as a, a demand uh, in any way as much as a request. Could I have a drink of water? I just hiked up here. It's a hot day. May I have a drink of your water? The woman of Samaria, verse 9, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask, me, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That common ground of water led to verse 10. 
Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, you and I are not like Jesus in that fact. We can take a person and bring them from earthly things right to the spiritual like he does. I mean, what he does is amazing. But we should be looking for that kind of thing and drawing people's attention. Maybe the person you're talking to likes golf. Maybe they like hunting or fishing. Maybe they like uh, canoeing. Maybe they like um, uh, embroidery. Maybe they have another hobby. A, uh, physical exercise, whatever it might be. And find that, com- maybe it's the weather. That's always, the, you know, everyone's interested in the weather. You can always have that common ground, talk about that. And, um, and to bring that person to begin thinking spiritual things somehow, and God will give you insight in those things, just like Jesus did. Getting her to go from physical water to spiritual water. Getting someone to go from that physical pursuit or enjoyment to a spiritual thing. It's a skill that I think the Holy Spirit can help us with. And if we pray for him to help us to do that, I think we'll be able to establish some common background with people. Because just like a doctor has to have, he has to have the patient trust him. When he scribbles out that illegible prescription, you've got to trust that he, gave, he wrote something that the, that the pharmacist is going to understand and is like, you're going to help me. There's got to be that trust element because you can't read it. And even if you could, you wouldn't know what it says. And even if you knew what it says, you wouldn't know what it means. Uh, so you have to have an element of trust. And I think in the spiritual realm, we have to be able to have an element of trust with people. And that's why it seems nowadays, just going up cold turkey and just asking someone, do you want to go to heaven? Okay, pray a prayer with me, um, may not be the best way to help them to really consider the claims of Jesus Christ. A lot of people I know have done that just to get you out of their hair. <laughs> okay, I'll do whatever it takes. Just get out of here. Um, we don't want that to happen. We want to earn their trust, which may take more than five minutes, right? May take five months, may take five years to win their trust. Gaining their trust, relationship building is important. It doesn't mean that when the opportunity arises and they ask you, what must I do to be saved? You shouldn't do that. Please, by all means, do that. And that has occurred uh, in my life several times where someone's come, how do I get saved? Can you tell me that? Well, I don't know. Come back next week, I'll tell you. No, I'll tell you right now. I'll tell you today. Let's do that. And uh, that's always exciting when that happens. But I don't think that's, the, that's not the, the normal response for people. Suppose someone's coming to our church congregation, their first-time visitor. You know, we've got to go with the gospel. We got, well, it's back there. Go with the gospel. We've got the cross, and we're singing songs about the gospel. What do you say to someone like that? Hopefully they don't get out of here without someone greeting them and welcoming them because one of the things they're looking for is, are you guys friendly? And from what I've been able to tell, we are a very friendly congregation. Now, maybe there's somebody that didn't, you know, they slipped out too soon, nobody shook their hand, you know, that kind of thing. But generally, they should find us friendly. Amen? Is that right? Shouldn't they find us friendly? They should find us faithful, but they should also find us friendly, friendly people. That's what they're looking for. They don't know they need the gospel. They don't need the medication. They know they're sick, maybe. They know they got some problems. They don't know what the real problem is. But they're coming to find, yeah, let's see what it's like over there. And if you kick them out of your pew, because that's where you sit, they're not probably going to come back anymore, are they? Friendly. It's okay for Christians to smile. Right? <laughs> you can smile. You can smile. People like that. It's still popular, even uh, after all these years. What would you say to a person? Hey, where are you from? Is this your first time here? Because uh, I sometimes say that, and they'll say, no, I've been coming for three weeks. Sorry. 
sorry about that. So maybe don't ask that one if you're not for sure. But if it looks like they're the first time, you say, I'm glad you came today. Where, where, are you from the area? And sometimes that can lead to a contact. And the idea is they're not going to spill their guts in the lobby, right? There's got to be something more. You got to get in their home. You got to take them to dinner. You got to get in, a, get away from the crowds where it's more private, and really let them talk if they're open to that. And that's where you can ask them things like, "What brought you to our church, by the way? Did, what was your? Did you have a religious background? Did you grow up going to church when you were a kid? What did you think of church? What did you think of the message? Did you understand what he was preaching about? You know, um, Revelation's a pretty tough book. You know, any questions you might have about that? Um, how's work going for you?" How's your family? What do you do for fun? What do you like to do? If you're in their home, you look up and there's a big deer eight-point buck trophy over the, hey, you like to hunt? Well, tell me about that deer hunt. How'd it go? Didn't go well for the deer, I guess, right? <laughs> you know, uh, it's some common ground. You'd be surprised when you take an interest in them. And, and they won't ask you how you are. That's just people don't do that anymore. They don't say, I'm fine. How about you? Tell me about your They don't do that anymore. So you've got to be the one to ask. Tell me about yourself. And don't be offended when they don't ask back about you because that's not your job, right? You're just dispensing medication. You want to find out how the patient is doing, where they see themselves. And I really think this gaining trust and building a relationship is critical to getting the opportunity to really share the gospel in a very personalized way. If I know this person's been raised Catholic and they had a bad experience at a Catholic school or uh, they had some bad experience in church and they've been burned or, or, or maybe they, I know that they might be trusting in their, in their physical human works to get them to heaven, I can cater that gospel to that. If I knew they grew up in a liberal Protestant church, I can cater the gospel presentation to address some of the issues that they might have faced, rejection of uh, supernatural things, um, social liberalism, and, and, and catering to the, what Christ would have them to see coming from that particular background. So getting to know the patient and their background really will help us to, uh, to fine-tune my presentation of the gospel to that life, and that's what they need you for. That's why I believe Christ brings you the people he wants you to help. And maybe not to somebody else. We can't send them all to the pastor. All right? Some people may not respond to an individual, but they may respond just right to you. And that's, God's brought that person into your life. You have something in common. They like you. You like them. Maybe there's some connection there. And that's, that's a gift that we are to use. That's a part of this entrusting of the, of the trust of the gospel. Use it. When uh, the, ten- the talents were given to the servants, they, they went out and looked for opportunities to invest it. They didn't just wait for the bank to come to them and said, we could give you a lot of interest for this money. No, they went to the bank and said, what can you do? Uh, invest it in this. Well, you, they took an effort to reach out, and then we have to do that. Number three, diagnosing the patient. What I want to know is two things. And if you're familiar with any of the evangelism explosions, this is part of that, and it's been something that I found very effective. Because a physician has to run tests, right? Blood tests, strep tests, whatever. And to find the pathogen, to find the disease, we have to take a test. We're going to look at it under a microscope or do some kind of a litmus thing and look at whatever they do with chemicals, spin it in the, uh, uh, what are those things called? Uh, whatever, um, centrifuge. And we're going to find out what's wrong with you. We've got to do some tests. And doctors are trained for years on how to interpret those tests and how to administer them. But as a Christian, we've got two tests to find out where a patient is. One, we need to find out if, um, if they have any assurance of going to heaven. That's important to know. Do they think they're going to heaven? And you can ask it a couple ways. You can say, 
You know where you're going to go. You know, you have to earn this point. You can't just walk up to a stranger and say this. They won't like this. But if you've earned a relationship, you can say, do you know where you're going to go when you die? I had a guy slam the door in my face for asking that question. He said, my little girl is standing here. Bam. <laughs> okay. Uh, the people don't want to hear about that if you don't know them. Death? I don't want to talk about death. I don't know about death. I'm trying to live. But if you're on the right, you can ask a question. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? Um, Kennedy's question was, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for sure that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? It's kind of a lengthy one, but it's the same point. You want to know, what do they think about their eternal soul? Do they think they're going to heaven? It's either going to be a yes or no, or I don't know, right? But that's going to tell you a lot. Second diagnostic question. Before you can administer this medication, you've got to know something else. What are they trusting in? Because even if they say, I don't know, I've never had someone who said they didn't think they were going to heaven. I never had anyone that said that. No, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to hell. There might be some out there. I haven't met them yet. Um, But generally they're going to say, I don't know, or I hope so, or maybe there'll be a yes. So you want to ask them, what are they trusting in to get to heaven? What are they hoping is going to get them to heaven? One way thing you can ask them is, um, what do you think the entrance requirements to heaven would be? Hmm, I never thought about that. Well, I suppose I've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I've got to not beat my wife. I've got to recycle, you know, try to not use aerosol sprays and damage the ozone and keep the whales going, you know. They might have a whole litany of whatever it is that are good deeds, but they're all the same, aren't they? They're always good deeds. So let's say they said yes to the first question, I do believe I'm going to go to heaven. And when you ask them what they're trusting in, that second question, they said a good deeds answer. Now, what do you have? You have a person who's trying to work his way to salvation and who wrongfully thinks he's going to heaven, correct? So he has false assurance. False assurance. That's like the person with a diagnosis of cancer and um, he thinks he's going to be cured by just eating um, at Subway every day because that's healthy for you, right? <laughs> I'm just going to eat Subway. I'll be good because that guy on TV, you know, it's, you know, it's not going to help, is it? So now you know this person needs Christ. But he has to first of all know that he's not going to heaven based upon his answers, right? Another way you could say, answer, ask a second question is, okay, let's say you would stand before God. And he would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? That'll give you the answer. That Now, if they say, the first question, yes, I think I'm going to heaven. And the second one is, I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal salvation based upon the merits of Christ alone. Something like that. You're probably dealing with a born-again believer. Enjoy some fellowship. Ask them about where they go to church, and you can enjoy some fellowship together. Um. Yeah, there might be a few people out there that know the answer, and they just want to get rid of you, so you'd have to feel that one out. But generally speaking, um, you, have, uh, you have these questions, and you can f- find where people are, and that will allow you to know what to do. If they say, I don't think I'm going to heaven, and they give, uh, well, a works answer for the second question, they still need the gospel. The only one that doesn't need the gospel is the one I just mentioned, yes and Christ. They gave a yes answer and a Christ answer. Everybody else needs the gospel but you just might go at it a little bit differently. We talked in Sunday school briefly. Kathy mentioned her uh, before and after. 
At this point, I think it's important for them to know, the person you're talking with, whether it's in their home, uh, at a restaurant, or brief uh, time at the beauty salon or whatever, if you have that opportunity, to just share a little bit about what happened to you. Because in the medical world, nobody takes a medication until it's been tested, right? And many people have tried it. (laughs) Maybe with many side effects, but I want to know that it's worked at least for one person, right? Well, in this case, you're that one person. You're the one they know. And it's the one thing you can say that they can't call you a liar about. They might say you're lying about Jesus, you're lying about the Bible, you're lying about God, you're lying about the church, you're lying about all that, but they can generally not, will not distrust or call you a liar about what happened to you. So I think that personal testimony is perhaps your most important tool that you can bring yourself. The gospel stands alone. But your testimony of what I was before Christ, I used to fear death, I used to be worried about uh, financial loss. I used to wor- be worried about isolation. Uh, that I, uh, you know, whatever the fears and d- problems were. Then I came to know the Lord, and after that, ah, oh, I've never worried about that again. Not once. I sleep at night, going to bed with peace. I know that God's in control. I don't have any of those fears and concerns or worries. In other words, give your testimony what Christ did for you, and if you can't. Give a testimony of what Christ did for you and how it changed your life. Either you were saved very young, and you know, you know, you, didn't, you weren't a murderer when you were three, so you can't confess that. Um, then you can consider, if you were saved as a very young person, what maybe your life might have been without Christ, knowing your family and your background and where maybe those kind of things. You can work that in fine. But if you got saved as an adult and can't give any evidence of a changed life, you might need salvation yourself. You have to think that through. A changed life, that person needs to hear that, that the gospel that you want to present to them worked for you. It changed your life. Most people need just one satisfied customer to try something that they've never tried before, especially if it's someone they like and someone they trust. And then finally, we'll end up today, because next time I speak with you, I'm going to share a little bit more about how I present the gospel with, with folks. And I think this is important. Ask permission. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't have to. He was Christ, the Messiah, right? He didn't have to ask permission to talk about who he was. But I think in our day and culture, we have to ask people because otherwise, if we just start talking about Jesus and they don't want to hear it, what do they say about us? You've heard it. What do they say? What kind of comments? It's not just one answer. but Quit shoving it down my throat. You're pushing your religion on me, right? So ask permission. I think that's courteous. But if you're going to ask permission... And they say, no, keep your word. Don't share it. If you force it on them anyway, when you've told, and they've told you, no, I don't want to hear that right now, you've just closed the door to any future conversations, haven't you? You just shut the door on them. But if you say, okay, no, no problem. Let's go out and get some ice cream. Let's go do a round of golf. Let's go hang out. And just, we won't deal with that today. And pray for an opportunity to come later on. If, you know, this idea that I've got to do it now because what if they die? no. No, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I don't subscribe to that. If that fruit's not ready for picking, that's the Holy Spirit's work, not your work. If it's not ready yet, it needs a little more time, let the Holy Spirit work and keep praying. When the time is ripe, you'll know it. But be aware that what you are doing in this giving of the gospel, this diagnosing your patient and preparing them to give them the medication is something that all the hosts of hell are against. 
They will resist you and fight you. They will fill your heart with fear of rejection to the point that many Christians will share the gospel but will never get to the final question of, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior right now? That's scary to get to that point because what comes next? Rejection. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to lose my friendship. I don't want to get, you know, if they say no, then what? You got to take the risk because they're not rejecting you, God said to Samuel. They're rejecting me. So you've got to, you've got to, what do they say in the salesman? You got to, you got to go for the what? What do they call it? Go for the, what do they say? What do they say? You got to make the deal or whatever. You got to ask the question, do you want to buy this? Is kind of what they do. You can't just say how great the product is and never ask them if they want to buy it. In other words, you got to share the gospel, which we haven't gone through today in any detail, but they have to know, you, you have to make a choice now. It's not just going to jump into your mouth or into your heart automatically. I'm not going to shove it in your throat. Do you want this now? It's available to you for free. Price has already been paid. Would you like this? Would you like to know Christ as your Savior? Would you like to have God as your friend, knowing that your home in heaven is eternally settled forever from this moment forward? Would you want that? Because if you do, I can help us. I can go through this again one more time, and we can ask God to save your soul. And I'll, I'll be here to help you too. That's what a friend does. That's what someone who has earned the right to be heard does. That's what someone who is com- committed to the Great Commission does. Bringing people to that moment of decision. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for evangelists and missionaries. It's for all of God's people. And let's be praying that God will help us in this year to be bold enough and to be confident enough in the power of the gospel, not in myself, to have those opportunities. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to study what Jesus did and model for us in the parable in the story of the Samaritan woman. And uh, Lord, we didn't really get to touch on the element of false religion, but Lord, so many people are confused about what religion teaches, what they think it teaches, and they're even more confused about what they think the Bible teaches. They only think it teaches what somebody told them it teaches. Some think we still have to work our way to get to heaven. So much confusion, Lord. Lord, help us to be bold. We don't know how long this world has before Christ comes back at the rapture, and it's plunged into seven years of great tribulation. But we know we're closer to that time than ever before. And Lord, no matter how old we are, whether we're young or whether we're in our retirement years, we are still messengers, ambassadors of Jesus Christ with one great commission to go out into the world wherever we go, wherever we travel, and make disciples, lead them to Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that through the power of Jesus Christ, not by our own power. We can't do it on our own. We know that. We're scared to death. We don't want to be rejected. We don't like, we don't like this. It's hard But, Lord, we know that's the way you grew your church in the first century, and we know that's how you're growing it today. Different culture in many ways, different ways of presenting the gospel, but it's still the same time-tested gospel that will awaken dead corpses, will restore life and hope, and will spare people from final judgment in hell. So glorify you, Lord, as we consider these things and prayerfully look for ways to invest the gospel in those around us 
In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.